It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Dizzy Gillespie episode of The Muppet Show. Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, and Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. It was a very minor correction, but you know, we're pedantic. In the Arlo Guthrie episode, um, when we were talking about the uh, New York Times, I made reference to the Anchor Bank jingle. I misspoke. I just meant the Anchor Bank ads. They didn't have a jingle. If you've already looked at the Arlo Guthrie show page at this point, and we hope that you have, then you've seen at least one sample of that commercial is in there. Um, your Anchor Banker, he understands. Also in the Arlo Guthrie episode, we talked about the questionable authorship of some of the songs of Hello Dolly. Just to close the circle on that conversation, in addition to elegance, Bob Merrill is also acknowledged as the writer of the song Motherhood, which might be why that particular song was not included in the film adaptation. And also in the Arlo Guthrie episode, uh, we discussed the Roud Song Index of songs collected by Steve Roud, which uh, at the time we pronounced rude, which was rude of us. We apologize. We regret the error. <laughs> and I wanted to mention that I learned this from the Folk Files podcast. Uh, that's a brand new podcast by a friend of mine. I learned this from her very first episode. Go listen to Folk Files. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about season four, episode 12 of The Muppet Show. And we've got some weird stuff in the dates category this week. Muppet Wiki says that the next three episodes in production order are Phyllis George, Dizzy Gillespie, and Liza Minnelli. Uh, and this matches the production dates that uh, also come from Muppet Wiki. But Disney Plus has Dizzy, then Liza, then Phyllis. And we know that some of you are watching along with us, so we're sticking with that order. We can't fact check the dates on the wiki like we can with the air dates, but we trust those guys. Also confusing, there's a note on the wiki page for this episode that says that it was actually produced in two parts, starting uh, the week of July 24th, 1979, and then picking up at the end of October, which is mostly weird because after these three episodes that we're already confused about, The Muppet Show took a break for the whole rest of 1979. So the October dates would have been right around the time that they were starting the John Denver Christmas special. So it sort of makes sense. And also, at least I have a theory about what it was that was shot later. So we will get there. Uh, none of this really matters because, as you know, the episodes didn't air in the same order that they were made. So this one aired in New York City on March 3rd, 1980. It was number 17 in the air order between two episodes we have not yet talked about. The only thing that you probably care about, for, for you and for us, the only important thing is how long until Liza? And the answer is, she's on deck. Yeah, we didn't want to delay. Next time, Liza. So focusing on that one date that really matters, March 3rd, 1980, in the news, extensive redesign of cars, a boon to Midwest industry, basically the push to make cars more fuel efficient because of the ongoing oil and gas crisis is also leading to a lot of jobs because the factories have to do new stuff. So, you know, that's nice when that works out for the environment and the people, even if it was driven by commercial gain. There's an article about in vitro fertilization, which is brand new and still being tested at this point. A massive snowstorm affected most of the country, including causing some deaths, including one in Florida. And several thousand tapes of recorded music from Pickwick International Incorporated, one of the country's largest chains of music stores, were subpoenaed as part of an investigation into counterfeiting in the music industry. I had never heard of Pickwick, but Sam Goody, which was a pretty extensive East Coast chain, was owned by the same company. In movies, a bunch of stuff we've talked about before, Breaking Away, The Jerk, The Rose, Kramer vs. Kramer, Muppet Show guest stars Alan Arkin and Madeline Kahn in something called Simon, American Gigolo, Norma Ray, and an ad that caught my eye because it's sort of gorgeous, Saturn 3 with Farrah Fawcett, Kirk Douglas, and Harvey Keitel directed by Stanley Donnan. Yes, that Stanley Donnan. It's on Peacock and elsewhere, so I watched it. I won't go on forever. It's not good, but I'm really glad I watched it. It's like... <laughs> It's clearly cheap, but also it really only those three people are in it, plus like a couple of other bit parts. And and it basically takes place all in this inside this one base. So like they could spend their money, you know, on it looking really good in a very 1980 sci-fi way. It's like a little bit Star Wars, a little bit aliens, a little bit or alien, a little bit Buck Rogers. It's not good, but very watchable. Speaking of very watchable in theater. Patti Lapone is performing on her off nights from Evita at Les Mouches. Uh, that concert would go on to become an album. And George Hearn and Dorothy Loudon have taken over the lead roles in Sweeney Todd. On the Billboard charts, because uh, we're in the 80s and I have to look it up anyway, 
Uh, the number one song is Queen's Crazy Little Thing Called Love, and it's third week at number one. Hey, cool. And on TV, uh, CBS has two episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, followed by MASH, followed by something called House Calls, which apparently ran for three seasons starting in 1979. It was a hospital sitcom, and it starred Wayne Rogers, best known as Trapper John from MASH, and Muppet Show guest star Lynn Redgrave. And that was followed by Lou Grant. On NBC, our friend Little House on the Prairie, followed by a 1975 movie called Let's Do It Again, which starred Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby. Good-natured but obvious comedy of two hypnotists and a boxer. Okay. I hope they mean a dog. (laughs) On ABC, we had the premiere of That's Incredible, a show that would run for... I don't actually know if it ran for a very long time, but just would, would remain like in it the, was on for all of the 80s, right? Yeah, it okay. would remain in the cultural consciousness for a very long time. Followed by Family, followed by Stone, which I think we may have mentioned before. Sergeant Daniel Stone has been moonlighting as a writer, and after he becomes a success with lots of fans, it leads to resentment on the force. Former friend Chief Paulson is among those unhappy, not so rookie Buck Rogers. And I mostly, what, you named a character Buck Rogers at this point in history? Uh, the star... Pat Hingle, who is best known for the, uh, best known to me anyway, for the uh, Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman, and a very, very tiny Justine Bateman. That's incredible. We're in for five years, so it, it were five seasons, so it was on for a long time. Yeah, and I, it must have been in, in syndication rerun something. I'm sure. And also, it was part of like a string of shows that all were sort of interchangeable, like Ripley's Believe It or Not, Real right. People. So like... You could like be flipping channels and see any of those and think that it was any other of those. And for those who uh, listening who have no idea what we're talking about, it was, uh, I guess, a reality show that was basically like true stories of real people doing unbelievable things. Sometimes like, you know, recreating like their encounter with a ghost and sometimes just like Guinness Book of World Record kind of things. Sounds exasperating. Yeah, like a like a news magazine format, not like not like reality show, like like Survivor. Like they weren't right, competing; right. they just you know it was like. And now let's meet this weird person. Speaking of meeting weird people, uh, we call these things Muppet shows, and we call tonight's Muppet show a good one. And that's because our very special guest star is the amazing master of jazz, Mister Dizzy Gillespie. Dizzy Gillespie, trumpet player, band leader, songwriter. John Burks Gillespie was born in 1917 in Chira, South Carolina the youngest of band leader James Gillespie's children. James Gillespie was a bricklayer by trade, but an amateur band leader, and obviously that had a big impression on young John, who became playing piano when he was like three years old, then trombone, finally settling on trumpet around age 12. Unfortunately, his father died before he ever heard his son play the trumpet, but music had taken hold of young John, and as a teenager, he won a scholarship for his first formal music training at the Lorenberg Institute in North Carolina. Two years later, John moved with his family to Philadelphia, where he got his first professional gig with a Frankie Fairfax band and picked up the nickname Dizzy due to his wacky behavior. He worked his way up through a number of bands before landing as a principal soloist with Cab Calloway in 1939. While working with Calloway, Dizzy met three people who had become incredibly important in his life. Cuban trumpeter Mario Bauza, who expanded Gillespie's musical palette by introducing him to Afro-Cuban rhythms. Saxophonist Charlie Parker, who would be Gillespie's partner in developing a new jazz sound known as bebop and dancer Lorraine Willis, who married Gillespie in May of 1940, and they would stay together for the rest of his life. Dizzy's time with Cab Calloway came to an end in 1941, when they got into a fight that sounds like it was the boiling over of a long-simmering tension between the two of them, probably provoked by Dizzy's playfulness crossing a line one too many times. I originally wrote this as they got into a fist fight, but there was actually a knife involved, so that's probably not the right word. But if I said a knife fight, that probably gives you a, a wrong idea. It wasn't that bad, but either way, uh, it ended with Dizzy getting fired. In the next few years, he freelanced with a number of different bands, working with the likes of Ella Fitzgerald and Billy Eckstein. He avoided being drafted into World War II by telling the draft board that given the way the United States had treated him, he couldn't guarantee that if they put a gun in his hands, he wouldn't shoot at the wrong side. They categorized him 4F, which means not qualified for military service. By 1945, Gillespie was playing in small jazz combos focused on bebop, a new sound that had been evolving over the previous few years, building on the foundation of swing music with new harmonies and rhythms to develop a more modern jazz sound. At the same time, he continued to incorporate the sounds of Afro-Cuban jazz into his repertoire, helping to popularize it among American jazz musicians and audiences. In 1946, Gillespie signed a recording contract with Bluebird Records, a jazz label distributed by RCA, and he also appeared in his first film, Jive in and Bebop. By 1947, he was leading big bands 
and increasingly becoming the face of bebop. His star continued to rise as he played in bigger and more prestigious venues, including Jazz at the Philharmonic, the fourth Cavalcade of Jazz concert held at Wrigley Field, and various concert halls across Europe. In January of 1953, he threw a party for his wife, where an accident bent his trumpet's bell upward. He liked the sound this produced, and he adopted the trumpet with a 45-degree raised bell as his trademark, having them specially made for him for the rest of his career. One of his signature trumpets is now part of the Smithsonian collection. Besides his distinctive trumpet and his distinctive sound, Gillespie is also remembered for his distinctive cheeks. While most brass players keep their cheeks tight to generate the air power they need, Gillespie famously puffed out his cheeks and neck like a bullfrog. We're a small-time operation, but we're expanding, expanding, just like you frogs expand. Don't you frogs expand? That's a myth. What? Myth, myth. Yes. Mm-hmm. In Dizzy's case, uh, there's some speculation that this maybe was the product of a medical condition, at least for the way that his neck expands, uh, and possibly something that he trained himself to do, particularly with his cheeks, probably a combination of the two. He took various bands on State Department tours around the world starting in 1956, which was the first time that the U.S. government provided economic aid and recognition to jazz. In 1962, he lent his voice to the animated short The Hole, which warned of the dangers of nuclear war and won an Oscar. The film won the Oscar, not Dizzy, but, you know. In 1964, he ran a joke campaign for president with Muppet Show guest star Phyllis Diller as his running mate. He used the publicity from the sun to raise funds for a variety of racial justice causes. In 1968, in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Dizzy embraced the Baha'i faith, which furthered his interest in humanitarian causes that might unite the people of the world. In his later years, he settled into sort of an elder statesman of jazz position, leading the United Nations Orchestra for three years in the early 80s and making appearances not only on The Muppet Show and The Cosby Show, but also playing a solo on Stevie Wonder's single, Do I Do. In 1989, Gillespie was honored with the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and the following year he received the Kennedy Center Honors and ASCAP's Duke Ellington Award. In the early 90s, a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer put an end to his touring career and then later his recording career. He died in 1993 at the age of 75. Does anyone have Dizzy Gillespie memories to share? Yeah. So as some of our listeners know, for a period of time, I worked overnight. (laughs) And uh, I worked overnight as a legal assistant, which meant that I was mostly proofreading and fact-checking and doing things that required a lot of focus. So I mostly, as I did these things, listened to instrumental music. And a couple months into doing it, I was like, you know what, I should use this as an opportunity to get to know music that I don't know. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to get to know jazz. I'm going to like develop an encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. And so I basically kind of let the Spotify algorithm do its thing. And it's like, as I would listen to a thing, I'd be like, oh, su- suggest me something else. And I started adding to this playlist and the playlist that I listened to at this point now is like, I want to say over 600 songs. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I loved about Dizzy Gillespie when he when the algorithm pulled he, him in is his sense of humor was evident. That thing about him pissing off Cap Calloway because he was a goof. I mean, that is exactly who he was as a musician. There's a, a real joy and playfulness in the the way he played and in, in the, the material that he chose i mean and and i think that that's evident in this episode too when i saw that he was coming up i was like oh his attitude is very buppety i'm I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out my sense of him and i I did no research to back this up but is that he's sort of in the same zone as beverly sills in the monoculture right as she was to opera he was to jazz at this at this point where you know he would he would be on pbs he would you know do things like this like I definitely knew who he was as a child in the same way I knew who Beverly Sills was as a child. And, and much like, much as we were not an opera household, we were not a jazz household, but also like, he's funny. Like if you're a kid and he pumps his cheeks out, like that's fucking funny. And so I think, I don't know why I know who he is and have for my entire life, but I absolutely do in a, in a, in a pleasant way. Yeah. It's funny. I, um, I listen to a fair amount of jazz, but I'm not like a jazz guy, if that makes sense. Uh, but we did play one of his big songs, uh, Night in Tunisia, when I was in high school jazz band. And that was probably my first real association with him. And even now, like when I, when I hear his name, I can conjure the kind of music he played. But other than a night in Tunisia, I'm not sure they could name another song that is closely associated with him. Uh, which is sort of interesting because like I said, he was 
he became sort of like the figurehead of bebop and like i know what bebop is and i know what bebop sounds like and i do think of it when i think of him without being able to name necessarily like any of the great bebop songs so christy what do you think of the episode i enjoyed it i didn't love it and partially due to the song choices i didn't particularly love any of the songs this week i loved dizzy playing with the muppets like i'm on record as being a big fan of anytime the mayhem get to do their thing but let's say it's good it's not great but it's good yeah i i don't know why i'm second in the outline but i will do whatever the outline tells me to do and i will i agree with you it was fine um i mean top of the middle it was very it was very cute i really enjoyed it i think i took like two notes i just wasn't really moved to care all that much but like not a bad way it's a pleasant episode I wish, especially because when like when we see him, he is so charming and seems to be having so much fun. I wish he had interacted with the Muppets more. It's a lot of Dizzy Gillespie performs while Muppets are present. And I have a theory about that. Great. I look forward to hearing it. But yeah, I mean I, I but he is he's good, so it's like it's not a problem, but you know, I would have liked more there. Um yeah, no, good episode. Uh Michal, how about you? Uh same. It's a good episode. It's probably even uh, higher than top of the middle like this is a very good episode it's a lot of fun and it it grew on me after multiple viewings but it took multiple viewings for me to kind of realize what a good time it is and maybe that's because i'm not a jazz person and i need to kind of be in the right mood to appreciate the musicianship that's happening while jazz is happening but it's it might also be a problem that i'm having where even a minus and b plus episodes in the show are starting to feel formulaic to me so there was so much fun to be had and also, we might be hitting a little bit of a rhythm. So I think that next time when we do Liza, that's going to help to break things up. But th- this is a very good episode. I'm so nervous because a number in the Liza Minnelli episode is like in my top five Muppet things. But I don't actually know if the rest of the episode is going to be any good. And we're already hyping it up. Well, here's what I can say for Liza episode, not having watched it in many, many years, is that both Liza and Phyllis George are like concept episodes, which we've generally appreciated when they do the big swing of a concept episode. So I sure. think that uh, that bodes well anyway. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about the Liza episode. We're talking about the Disney Gillespie <laughs> episode. David, what did we're you think? We're always talking about the Liza episode. We are in our hearts. We're another. always talking about <laughs> We're a Liza episode podcast. We're just taking five seasons to get to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I thought this was great. And also like the minute it was over, it like entirely left my brain. Like I watched it twice, but further apart than I usually do for this. And today, when I sat down to watch it again, it was like watching it for the first time. I was like, oh, it's that episode. And I don't know why that is. Because, like, there's aspects of the backstage plot that I think are sort of, like, classic core Muppet canon stuff happening. And uh, it's one of, I think, perhaps the best veterinarian's hospital. But maybe because it's, like, an excellent season two episode, but there isn't much... There's like a lot of good stuff and there's connective stuff, but there's not a story or there's not a plot. And that I think maybe is why I really appreciate it in the moment, but it doesn't stick with me the way that some of the other ones do. Dizzy Gillespie, Dizzy Gillespie, 15 seconds or curtain, Dizzy. Oh, uh, say Diz, Kermit does have one rule for this show. What's that? No puppets allowed. <laughs> what? Play the trumpet now. It's very cute. As we open, Dizzy is in his dressing room playing with the marionette, uh, which is apparently just producing the sounds of a jaw harp. Unless Dizzy is doing that with some part of his body we can't see. He is dancing to it in a really cute way. I don't, I didn't stop. I just assumed it was playing in the background. It did not occur to me the marionette was making it happen, but it was, it added to the, oh, Dizzy Gillespie is charming and funny and good at this and just seems to be having a good time that made me wish he interacted with Muppets more, but it was very, very yeah. fun. That's so funny because I thought it, at first that it was a didgeridoo. I did too. And, and, and I, I thought that we were being set up for a, like a didgeridoo Gillespie joke, which is not even a joke, but a didgeridoo Gillespie. Diz- didgeridoo. Yeah. Like <laughs> there have been so many like bad Scooter doesn't know your name jokes of late. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he's having a great time playing with this marionette and then just casually tosses it aside and picks up his trumpet like oh well guess i gotta play the trumpet (laughs) 
This week in Statlin Waldorf's box, Waldorf is going stag, or is he? Poor Statler, he couldn't take it anymore. Waldorf is alone up there right now. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. Gonzo plays the trumpet. Three in a row. I don't like it. He got two simultaneous tones out of that, too. Well, that's true, too. That's talent. Let's go backstage. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage. <laughs> so backstage this week, we have a noise inspector. Uh, inspector Labrea is here to respond to apparent noise complaints about the show. And he's brought this little noise monitoring device with him. So this is, a, I think, a, our third one-off character with a California street name? Third or fourth? Third, yes. at least. Been yeah. Clive Kawanga. And there was a La Cienega. I thought it was a Sepulveda. Oh, a Sepulveda, you're right. There was not a lot. So, yeah, I guess it's three. (laughs) I'm a big fan of this puppet. Yeah, it's it's a whatnot that has these outrageous eyebrows. Uh, I mean, he looks like Eugene Levy. I'm so here for it. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah, he's a fun puppet, but he is uh, not a fan of The Muppet Show, or at least not of the noise that The Muppet Show makes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it's the music, so, huh? Uh, yes. You see, your strings are okay, but mm. the brass, especially the trumpet, is meter. Uh, oh, terrific, Kermit. Hey, it's time to introduce Dizzy Gillespie. Who? Uh, 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 Izzy Gillespie, uh, one of the world's greatest violinists. Izzy? What are you talking about, violinist? You know the- Dizzy put that. Oh, why did you do that? Uh- that is probably the great moment of the episode because it's implied that Kermit has just like stepped on Fozzie's foot or maybe like elbowed him in the gut. But Fozzie's reaction is wonderful. Fozzie takes Labrea down to the canteen for a cup of coffee. Kermit hides the device. But of course, this is a Muppet show and nothing happens quietly around here. So eventually the chef will hit him with a frying pan, of course. Kermit, hey, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know he was a noise inspector. Oh, it's okay. He's perfectly safe down in the canteen. That's what you think. The chef is mashing potatoes on his anvil. (laughs) (laughs) And just chasing the inspector around and eventually knocking him out. Because why not? Miss Piggy shows up. She's prepared to charm the inspector, per Kermit's instructions. Um, But she happens to catch him in the middle of speculating about whether the show has a permit to keep livestock. Silly! You did not tell me the inspector was such a handsome man. <laughs> uh, as you know, I am Miss Piggy. Right. Add to that list one sow. What? Sow, you know, rhymes with cow. <laughs> uh, 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 Piggy. Uh, oh, yeah! Rhyme this! Uh, <laughs> She tells the little noise machine to shut up, and it does. I love that. <laughs> One little line that is thrown away so quietly that you might miss it. <laughs> Piggy asks Kermit, may I speak with Vu incognito? And Kermit says, sure, wherever you want. He's <laughs> <laughs> just so sweet and muppety, and you might miss it. And of course, all's well that ends well. La Brea gets to sit in on the closing number, so it's fine. I'm going to stay here and watch him. Right here? Yeah. What's his name? Uh, uh, Izzy something? Uh, 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 no, in actuality, it's it's Dizzy Gillespie. Dizzy Gillespie? That's terrific! It is? Yeah! Well, but, but he plays trumpet. He sure does. The guy's my all-time favorite. Hey, do me a favor. Let me sit in with him. I play a little saxophone. Gee, well, uh, why, fine, if, if you'll forget your recorder there. Uh, what recorder? He flings it off the desk and it just crashes, presumably to smithereens. Alas, the noise machine. I don't have any, like, analysis of this backstage plot. No, no, it's fine, right? That's what we were saying before, it's fine. I appreciate that the backstage plot is about Dizzy Gillespie, even though it doesn't contain Dizzy Gillespie. Like, I... I I'm glad that they're at least like making an effort to push the two things together. Here's what I'll say. Uh, a few minutes ago when I said there is no plot, there is no story, that's because I totally forgot that this whole thing happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the other half of the backstage plot, which we're going to get to in a minute. Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, this could have been made a little more interactive with the guest star. Like if he sees that Dizzy Gillespie is coming through to go on stage or like they're trying to hide Dizzy Gillespie himself rather than just like trying to hide his name. Yeah. Just to clarify, I finished watching this episode 45 minutes ago and I have forgotten about this. (laughs) So maybe it's a me problem. Maybe. Well, speaking of uh, old men with memory problems. Uh, We also have a nice little runner this week. Um, Backstage, or at least not on stage, uh, there is a special visitor in Stetlin Waldorf's box. Adler isn't here tonight, Kermit. He's sick. Oh, that's too bad. The flu? No, the show. He's sick of it. (laughs) Well, uh, don't get lonely up there, okay? Not much chance of that. My wife is using Stotler's ticket. She's just powdering her nose. No kidding. I've always wanted to meet your wife. I thought the show had started. Who's the frog? (laughs) That's Kermit, dear. What's your wife's name, Waldorf? Astoria. (laughs) The joke being that the Astoria puppet is just the Stotler puppet in drag. It is a different voice, so presumably it's not really Statler, but what lives on in fans' minds is it's Statler and Treg. And the rest of the episode, she'll just be heckling the Muppets, and also heckling her husband. And also they pronounce her name Astoria, which delights me. Also, the Waldorf Astoria, as mentioned in our previous episode, extensively. Yes, that that is also the joke. Not the ass. I mean, both things can be true. There's a great shot. I didn't check to see who directed this, um, but I think it's when Astoria says her name and Kermit does the um, the turn to the camera and, and does a smushy face. But I didn't even notice because it's surprisingly subtle. It starts, you, you're, you're looking at Kermit from behind with the box past him and the box is in focus and Kermit is slightly out of focus, which I also maybe didn't notice because it's the back of Kermit's head, which is naturally fuzzy. And then Kermit turns to the camera and there's a focus pull and the the box gets blurry and Kermit gets in sharp focus. And it's it's really subtle, actually. And it's like a tiny moment. But it's like not the kind of thing you usually see on The Muppet Show. And I just like that they that they did it. And also Kermit's mushy face, always funny to me. And the fact that they gave it that little little bit of... Cinematography t- touch. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. It's nice. Obviously, I made a gif of it that will be on the show page. What's neat about this for me is that this is a rare scene where it's Jim Henson playing off Jim Henson. Um, because uh, he is both Waldorf and Kermit, which then made me wonder, oh, I wonder who Astoria is. And it turns out that that is actually a very complicated question. And if you look at the Muppet Wiki page on Astoria, there is no clear credit as to who performed her. And there's all sorts of like guesses from different Muppet Show performers who they've interviewed over the years. And everyone's like, oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe this, maybe that. But their best guess, based on all of their research and conjecture, is Bob Payne, who is probably a name that you're not familiar with because uh, he's sort of a recurring character in the world of Muppets. He was, I think, a college friend of Jim and Jane Henson's, and he worked with them as early as Salmon Friends in the 50s. And then he went on to, to work off and on with Muppets for the next couple decades. Uh, and also apparently worked on a few episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anyway, he started performing on The Muppet Show a little bit around this time, although I don't know that he's specifically credited in this episode, but they did some vocal comparisons between Astoria and some characters that Bob Payne played on Sesame Street in the same year, and they think they sound alike, and Jerry Nelson thought it was probably Bob Payne, so Muppet Wiki comes down on the side of it's probably Bob Payne, but there's like lots of question marks all around it. Huh. I just assumed it was Jerry Nelson. That's what it sounded like to me. But I also didn't read this wiki page. So now I'm reading it. Jerry Nelson says on this wiki page that he at first thought it was John Lovelady, but as we all know, John Lovelady left the show after season one. So it would be unlikely that he would show up for this. And that Jerry Nelson wouldn't recognize himself. Right. Because I thought it was a variation on his, like, trash heap voice. But apparently not. Do you think the weird pronunciation of Astoria is because they're trying to emphasize the Aster part of it? Like, is that? Oh, maybe. I think it's just Jim's southernness coming out. Like, you have to, like, make an effort to say it that way. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, I attributed it to an accent thing, not to trying to accentuate the joke thing. A slight side note on the um, the subject of Jim playing against himself. Um, recently, as we're recording this quite a while ago, as you're hearing it, Stephanie DiBruzzo, a, a longtime Muppet and other Puppet Things performer, including Avenue Q, had a great thread on Twitter about sort of the, the art and challenge of having someone else puppeteer for you and then going in and looping the voice, which I think we retweeted on our uh, on our Muppeturgy account, but I'll try to remember to link it in the on the show page if I can find it. Who knows what Twitter slash X is doing by the time this comes out? Take a screenshot, Adam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it just was really interesting, and and since it's come up on on our podcast before, I was especially interested in it. We've got unsurprisingly quite a bit of music this week. Some blues. Uh, some jazz, a little bit of diss, a little bit of that. But we start under the sea. And speaking personally, I want to catch me some. If I saw a turbot, I don't think I'd disturb it. I wouldn't want to trifle with a trout of So this is a song called Bluefish Blues, and it's an original to The Muppet Show. It was written by Ray Charles, not that one. The Ray Charles who took over the show's music consultant position from Larry Grossman this season. And because we haven't really talked about him at length, I actually dug a little deep on this Ray Charles this week and learned all kinds of fun things. He was the leader of the Ray Charles Singers, who I think we've mentioned before. They were Perry Como's backup people and had albums in their own right. He was the winner of two Emmys. He oversaw the music portion of the Kennedy Center Honors from 1982 to 2014, as well as the PBS concerts for the 4th of July Memorial Day, which makes me think that he's probably connected to the Huck and the Bejeepers incident. And he was a Sean Anaz music director. But the wildest thing that I found is that he was the guy singer on the Three's Company theme. Which uh, <laughs> I a legacy. Which I did not know was written by Joe Raposo. Oh, we've uh, definitely talked what? about that. Have we? we? Uh, yeah, I, I forgot. Surely we have. I mean, if, if we have, I forgot. Anyway, I was delighted all over again. Um, but yeah, and then the the female singer on that is a singer named Julia Rinker Miller. Yeah, this is fun. It definitely shows off why later in life, Louise Gold became a West End musical theater star. Yep. I really want this track so that I can blues dance to it. It's is very under the sea in terms of the fish puns. I realize this came first. She also looks quite a bit like Ursula. Similar coloring, similar hair. And uh, also I know Ursula's not in under the sea. Don't don't add us. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it just was a it was a delight on multiple levels. And the backup singers here who are also playing instruments are the Gills brothers, who you might remember from the Crystal Gale episode where they sang that song, 60 Seconds Got Together. Uh, they were also apparently in the Octopus's Garden number on the James Coco episode, but I do not remember them from that. There were a lot, uh, there were a lot of fish in that sea. There, there were. <laughs> um, and uh, the saxophone player at one point, who is uh, downstage and very close to, to the fish singer, takes the saxophone out of his mouth and starts like, sucking on her tail fin and like i'm not sure if he was supposed to be eating it or if it was supposed to be sexual it read very sexual to me she sees it gets pissed off at him and like chases him off it's like a whole a whole little melodrama happening in, in the background of this song uh huh. that that i really enjoyed you do sense I they were making their it. own fun during this entire yes <laughs> i saw that she hit a fish with her microphone but i don't know if that was Part of this incident or yes. whole other I think incident. so, yeah. She's yeah. beating him off. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <Phrasing>. <laughs> she is a very cool looking puppet. I don't even know how to describe her, but She's a big fish. She's a big fish. She's got these really cool cheeks and this really cool floof on top of her head. And it's all very shiny. I really like all the outfits. And she's she is wearing a ball gown, but like there's they could also just be her scale. Like it's a really nice little 
It's very cool. Illusion. Like yeah. she kind of has sleeves, but maybe not. Like they could just be sparkly scales or they could be sequins. It's a really cool puppet. Now, let me get this straight. This is a typical show, right, Waldorf? Oh, I'd say so, Astoria, my dear. <laughs> First, a frog talks and then a fish sings. Mm. I wanted you to see for yourself. I bet you thought I came here to have a good time. Oh. <laughs> and now, let's let Dizzy Gillespie take us on a trip to the show me state. Hey, I hate to see Even the sun go down Cause my baby She done left this town It's the St. Louis Blues. No, not the hockey team, but the inspiration for the name of the hockey team. A song from 1914, shout out to the public domain, written, and I'm putting written in sort of air quotes, uh, (laughs) by W.C. Handy, uh, the self-proclaimed father of the blues. He sort of did that, like folk music-y thing of like collecting songs and melding them together and so this song was sort of cobbled together by him from like songs that he uh well a song that he had heard played and then like stories he'd heard and uh what's funny is this song ended up being a direct inspiration for george gershwin's rhapsody in blue and uh, George Gershwin actually specifically sent a thank you to W.C. Handy. So at least it was acknowledged. <laughs> but yeah, W.C. Handy was a, a big deal. He, he sort of took the blues, which was, was very sort of regional to the Southern Delta area and blew it up in popularity. So it's pretty cool. So this is a song that Dizzy Gillespie recorded a number of times in his career. And it's interesting because each recording, and he, he's done this with a lot of different songs, uh, each recording really feels almost like a totally different song. And and here, if you don't know the song already, I think it's almost hard to understand that this is uh, a song as old as it is because it gets such like a 70s funk take on it. Um, but certainly like, you know, Dizzy recorded in the 40s in a version that sounds totally different from this and and many times in between uh which i think is pretty cool Hmm. also i did not know that there was a hockey team called the st louis blues (laughs) i also did not know i also didn't know anything about wc handy other than he's referenced for one line in the music man (laughs) now i know slightly more than that it all comes back to the music man in the end it really does for me speaking of music man do we talk about the bongo player yeah, so I was going to say this is a you know Dizzy Gillespie with the mayhem, and they're on, uh, they're on their season four set that has the mirrored walls that I like. Uh, but there's there's a new face in with the mayhem. Yeah, making his only appearance on the Muppet Show. It's a bongo player. He looks thrilled to be there. <laughs> Little does he know he'll never be back again. But it's the same. The wiki told us it's the same pattern as New Zealand, but it's I guess not the same puppet. He just looks very New Zealand-esque. He's very, very smiley, using live hands to play bongos. And there, there's a lot of style happening on this stage overall. He also looks like he could be related to Ernie. He has Ernie yeah, coloring. He's very orange. He has a, a little, is it a goatee when it's like that? When it's like sticked yeah. out like that? Or is that yeah. a different Or is it a okay. soul patch? Yeah, oh, one right, of those. Right, because it doesn't go under his nose. It's, it's just a soul patch. And sunglasses and a yellow bucket hat. And uh, not quite a Hawaiian shirt, but, you know, that style of short sleeve button down. Uh, there's a lot going on visually <laughs> with yeah. this dude. And he's got Ernie's little built-in smile that makes him look very friendly. I'm a big fan of the guitar that Janice is playing in this number. It's like green sequins. I, I don't know how to explain it because it's only on, on screen for a split second. But it's gorgeous and shiny and lots of colors. And... Animal's drums have also been upgraded. He now has two, I don't know if they're bass drums, but where the bass, where the singular bass drum that had the mouth on it used to be, there's now two drums next to each other that have stars on them. 
That is a very important detail, I am sure. I think he's gained a Tom Tom too. The 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 set seems wider also. Yeah. Um, which I think might partly because because they they shoot from some other angles, uh, in part because of the way the bongo player is placed, and there's a close-up of him, and so you can see uh an angle on animals drums that we don't usually get to see. And I wonder if that drum is hiding something. But uh it looks great. The whole thing. Looks great. Frank <laughs> You're right. But they're upgraded overall. What did you think of that, Poopsie? Well, not too bad. Mm-hmm. I can understand why you keep doing it week after week. You can? By the way, how much do they pay you? Pay me? Of course. Can you imagine some poor stupid turkey doing this for nothing? Gobble, <laughs> 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 gobble. I love that he calls her poopsie. Let's move on to our UK spot, where we have an old ditty by some old biddies. Just walking down the street, singing do It's the return of Jerry and the Atrix, uh with uh, Do What Diddy, which was a big hit in uh, 1964, which is saying something because it was pretty hard to unseat a failed skiffle outfit, the Beatles, in 1964. Uh, it was written by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, who were a married at the time writing duo who wrote or co-wrote a lot of girl group era classics. They wrote to do Ron Ron. And then he kissed me, be my baby Christmas, baby, please come home. Chapel of love. I can hear music leader of the pack. They also discovered Neil diamond and uh, they later went on to separately do cool things. He's still around. Um, she passed away in 2009, but um, there is a website uh, dedicated to her, elliegreenwich.com, and the photo gallery is amazing. It's really worth going and checking out. She had amazing style in every era and lots of cool famous friends. Yeah, there was a an early jukebox musical uh, telling her life story through songs in 1984 called Leader of the Pack that <laughs> David pointed out that uh, the New York Times critic at the time, Frank Rich, who was notably harsh about things he was called the butcher of broadway by some called it an embarrassment (laughs) it's really too bad because the show originated in a different form like off off broadway and got a a glowing review from the music critic which is probably why they then invested all this money in making it bigger and bringing it to broadway only to have a different critic then come and tear it down yeah uh also in the review i think he said something about how watching the litigious producers sue each other over the last few months has been much more entertaining than anything that happens on stage. Oh, that is a shame. And Yikes. I was so excited to hear this, or at least I was at, after I clicked on her website per Christie's recommendation and scrolled through all 47 of her photos, you know, with Phil Spector and Elton John. And I thought, wow, there should be a musical. And then I read the next bullet point. <laughs> oh, there was. Oh, no, it was bad. It's interesting though, because the in the version that played on Broadway, Dinah Manoff, uh, who you probably know from Empty Nest, played young Ellie. But then in Act Two, Ellie herself came out and played herself for the second half of the show. Uh, and Darlene Love, who you know sang "Christmas Baby, Please Come Home" and a lot of other Ellie Greenwich songs, also appeared in the musical as herself. Um, and Annie Golden was that. also in the musical. Hmm. Anyway, uh, right now there is a musical on Broadway called "A Beautiful Noise" about the life and times of Neil Diamond in which Ellie is also a character. So uh, if you want your little dose of Ellie Greenwich on Broadway, you can have it. Not a sponsored post. As long as there's a beehive in there somewhere. Here's a a fun Muppeturgy bingo fact. Greenwich and Barry were the most represented non-performing songwriting team on the original terrible Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest songs. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And that non-performing distinction is in there because Lennon and McCartney had more. Uh Uh-huh. Fair. But yeah, in 1964 alone, uh, they were responsible for 17 singles that hit the the Hot 100. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, they... They knew what they were doing. But yeah, but uh, Do I Diddy, the song that we were talking about, was originally recorded by the Exciters, the group that sang Tell Him. 
which people who are Ally McBeal fans would know. <laughs> Never heard of the Exciters, but I certainly know those songs. Yeah. I think um, it's also on the um it's on a is it on the Big Chill or on Good Morning Vietnam? It's on an album that has come up yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Do Diddy was a hit for Manfred Mann, and their version spent two weeks at number one on the Hot 100. Uh, it was number one on the UK singles chart, number one on Cashbox, and number 15 on the year-end Hot 100. And I was particularly entertained by the Cashbox description of the song, which was a thumping novelty rocker that's right up the teeter's alley. <laughs> sure. That sounds like too many euphemisms. <laughs> teeners, man. Speaking of thumping rockers, let's talk about Jerry and the Actrix. <laughs> I, I just want to share. I want to share this fact about this. I was trying to figure out, like, this song. I feel was sort of everywhere in the eighties, and I don't know why. It was it's a McDonald's of, commercial, wasn't it? Is that what it was? It sort of turned into a like a kid song in a way because it, you know it has the nonsense chorus. So I just looked it up, and the Wikipedia page. Oh, it was KFC. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> the um, under in popular culture on the um, the Wikipedia page, the first mention is that it. Bill Murray and Harold Ramis do a marching bit in Stripes, a movie I've never seen, but I feel like I've seen that clip. And then the novelty item, Travis the Singing Trout, a successor to Big Mouth Billy Bass, sings a parody version of the song about how the fish ended up mounted on a plaque. So (laughs) head to eBay, everyone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't know that the Billy retired. (laughs) I I think, uh, I think Travis was a colleague. I don't think, uh, I don't think he was a editor. Yeah. Anyway, um, just had to eat fish world. Had to share Travis the trout. Uh, Sorry, you were saying Jerry and the Atrix. Yeah. Who are not fish. No. They're old rockin' biddies. Elderly ladies. And they're having a great freaking time. I love this number. It makes me happy every time they pop up. I, I disagree. Jerry is an alarming color. I worry about her kidney health. Something is wrong. We, which one is Jerry? Is Jerry the one who... I assume she's the cellist. I could be wrong. The one playing the cello is an alarming color. Oh, yeah. She's kind of a jaundiced color. But it's a rock band with a cello. Yeah, which is a thing so I normally love. Up. But also, I couldn't have noticed. There is a cello solo in this, which is great. But like, she is playing the cello throughout, and there is no cello anywhere in that track that I could hear, which also bothered me once I noticed it. <laughs> I will say that both the cello player and the guitar player look to me extremely reminiscent of the yet-to-be-created-at-this-point-in-history, I think, Hallmark card character, Maxine. Oh, <laughs> yeah, gosh. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And so ruining the Atrix for me. Well, and so because of that, I went on a little internet hunt to find out more about Maxine. And boy, do people not like her. Really? Because I guess people decided that her humor was based in ageism and that it was like cruel to senior citizens. Well, that's kind of what the entirety of Jerry and the Atrix is. Fair. But they're having such a great time. I am delighted by this. Also, some of them are great musicians and some of them are not. Like the drummer takes yeah. her verse and she's totally off the rhythm, which is <laughs> especially entertaining because she's a drummer. And there's a Frank Oz character who's playing the piano. And <laughs> it's, I don't know if he's deliberately doing it. Like she forgot to put her teeth in. There is a set of dentures yeah, sitting think, on top of the piano that sings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's not wearing them. So she just like mumbles, no, I'm a single day. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> I guess it didn't really strike me as I watched it, but the more we're talking about it, the more I wish that there were a joke besides look at these old ladies playing rock and roll. Isn't that hilarious? Which like might've been more novel at the time, but now that, you know, we have the Rolling Stones still on tour at age 1100, like that's, (laughs) it's just like, yeah, old people can play rock and roll music. Why is that funny? Like, I just don't, I don't. Yeah. I don't need for there to be a joke. Yeah. I'm glad they're rocking out. I did kind of wish, that's probably a strong word for this, I did wonder whether this particular song might have been a better fit for Bobby Benson and the Baby Band, uh, just because do I did Bite your tongue. Well, just because, like... It does make sense. It sounds like baby talk, but, you know, I, all things being equal, I prefer Jerry and the Atrix. Put a gun to my head and make me choose. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the romantic side of it would have been weirder with the baby band yeah uh, stop them before 
It's a stretch. I didn't understand all of it, but I'm certain the English people enjoyed it. And then we get a little bit of something. A little bit of this, a little bit of that makes a whole lot of heap When you're putting out, more than you're taking in. Let me get this straight. A little bit of this, a little bit of that makes a whole lot of heap Don't it? When you're putting out. More than you take in. So this is called A Little Bit of Diss, and literally the only information about it to be found anywhere on the internet is on the Muppet Wiki page, which says, Traditional, arranged by Dizzy Gillespie. Who's tradition, I ask you? T.Rad. <laughs> I mean, it's the jazz tradition. Sure. Because uh, yeah. I really, this is just improv, right? Like this is just yeah. They, it, like, it has to call the chord and started going. And I really did for a little while try to see if there was anything about this, and until I came to the conclusion that it was improv. But it, it's an incredibly hard thing to Google because Google kept suggesting little bit of discharge, and I just got too grossed out to keep going. It was just like <laughs> I'm, I'm fine not knowing. I'm fine not knowing. I don't uh-huh. care if it's my job. I didn't realize until this number that Dizzy Gillespie was a singer too. He's and and in retrospect, it's actually right there in his Wikipedia page. But he's just so well known as a trumpet player that that sort of gets left off his bio all the time. And also, I think he's primarily known for scat singing, uh, which also has nothing to do with discharge. But he's very good at it. Just want to point out, in terms of your relationship to this episode, David, this is in fact the second number in this episode and second clip we have heard. Uh, during this recording in which he sings. Did he sing in St. Louis Blues too? Yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> Mostly. I was checking myself like, wait, like, wait, yeah. A few bars. Honestly, Waldorf, I don't understand you. Why do you come here and put up with this irritating, mindless, incessant nonsense when you could stay home with me? Uh, no comment. We end in a place that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it's fun. I'm so glad that we have that particular section clipped because for a hot second, I thought they were going to sing Lullaby of Broadway and I had I some questions. <laughs> I mean, I still have questions, but... Uh, a lot yeah, going on. There's a lot yeah. going on. So yeah, this is Swing Low Sweet Cadillac, which is a variation of the the spiritual Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Which is typically chalked up to, again, traditional. But in in this case, um, there is somebody to credit, Wallace Willis, who was a Choctaw freedman in Oklahoma. And it was written sometime after 1865. The exact date isn't known, but shout out to the public domain. And yeah, it's a a song with a lot of uh, interesting history. It's really entwined with the Underground Railroad and the Civil Rights Movement. And in 1939, the Nazis added it to a list of undesired and harmful pieces of music. So you know it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) If If you're pissing off the Nazis, you're doing something right. And it was made the Oklahoma State Gospel Song in 2011 which was a thing that was signed into law at the Oklahoma Cowboy Hall of Fame. Sure. I've just Googled the Oklahoma Cowboy Hall of Fame, and I'm going to be in Oklahoma City for work in a few months, and I might have to go there, even Please though do. Yes. it looks and sort of wild. It's, um, it's, a li- it's not walking distance, sadly, from the American Banjo Museum, which I have been to, and uh, which contains multiple Kermits. Uh-huh. But it looks really nice. <laughs> I guess museums go. Great. Let us know how it goes. Yeah. My first question is, why wasn't there some sort of warning about this? 
Well, this has set dressing and costumes, but it doesn't really have exaggerated stereotypes. Like it has people. Yeah. It has it has Muppets dressed in ethnic attire, but like it has Muppets like doing the belly dancing and like zooming in on their butt wiggling around. Yeah, yeah but, it, but but it walks like, a line. It does walk a line. Yeah, I don't see this as being all that different than like the Madeline Kahn number that she did with the feet. Yeah, in fact, it's a it might be the same set. Oh, possibly. There's a lot more going on in this one, so it's hard to say. Well, if we're if we're asking why questions about this, I do wonder why our civil servant friend is in drag for this number. That that part was not clear to me. Yeah, and plays uh, is it a saxophone through a yeah. veil? Yes. <laughs> Not how that works. <laughs> Which is impressive, but yeah. Yeah. I think if if the joke is, haha, they're wearing vaguely Middle Eastern garb and like that's supposed to be entertaining and like adding to it like, oh, he's in drag and that's making it even more entertaining. Then like I I don't think this walks the line. I think I think it crosses a line where there should have been a warning on this one. I mean I think the my my sort of headcanon around the drag is that he was a late addition to this number, and that was the only costume they had left. Mm-hmm. They never say that, but that would make sense. Given or they want to yeah. hide him somehow. Right, either way. But I think the, the bigger question is, why are they singing this song on this set? And one answer could just be, well, it's the Muppet Show, and things are always incongruous. But I suspect that at some point they were planning on doing A Night in Tunisia, which is again, like the most famous Dizzy Gillespie song. And I wonder if at the last minute he was like, you know what? I'm not feeling it. I want to do this other song instead. Uh, And they just had to roll with it. And, you know, I said before that I have theories also about like why there were reshoots later. I suspect that there may have been big chunks of the show that he just was either unprepared or unwilling to do. Hmm. And that that's why we don't see more of him in the backstage part of this and so there's a recurring bit in the onstage section that we'll talk about in a minute that feels like it could have been done later it's yeah that's, very, that's what i assume was was done later. very yeah. cheap looking set and i suspect that like maybe there was some problem with what dizzy gillespie was either prepared to do or able to do and so there was a substitute song and they had to quickly make up some other shtick to fill in for either one missing number or like a set of missing runner sections. And that's your Muppet conspiracy theory report for this. Well, I mean, well, <laughs> I, we should, we should talk when we get there, but I mean, or I guess we just talk about it now. Cause we already have like that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go into like a whole why, but yeah, I think it's knowing that it would, this was recorded in two parts, months apart. The bench runner, the jazz runner is pretty clearly the thing that was shot separately. And, and I just wonder, and, and time wise, it would, it would, you know that, that checks out with what you said, David. Um, that it was either a bunch of backstage bits or adds up to the time of a single sketch or number that got cut. I just I I won't go so far as to speculate on why it got cut, but I, I would love to know if we ever could, which we probably can't. Just what got cut and why? I don't know. I just saw an online auction where you could bid to have a hour long Zoom call with Dave Goals, could pull our money and ask him. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he remembers? <laughs> I don't think he remembers. I wouldn't remember. Like it's not that's not shade. Like I it's, I doubt it. Yeah, I don't remember what I did earlier today. He's significantly featured in the scenes that we suspect are the reshoots. So like he might True. That's true. Uh, these costumes, whatever we think of the appropriateness of these costumes, they are gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> and like that's true. for an episode that feels a little bit lazy, like that they did all these one-off costumes to put like Animal and Janice in, I I found impressive and just it's just fun to look at. Yeah, they're colorful and gauzy and shiny and... And and inexplicable. And inexplicable. And adding some intrigue, if possibly racist or offensive intrigue. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? So as David mentioned, this is... I, I don't know if I would call it the best ever veterinarian's hospital, but it's pretty great. The patient is a pig who is an admirer of Miss Piggy. Dr. Bob, I love Miss Piggy. I see. Prepare the patient for brain surgery. <laughs> Watch it, Doc. This patient has good taste. Oh, yeah? Then why does he have me for a doctor? 
Brain surgery? Are you serious, Dr. Bob? No, I'm comical, Dr. Bob. Serious Dr. Bob was my brother, the comedian. <laughs> you have a brother who is a comedian? Well, I did, until he fell into a vat of molten optical glass. What happened? He made a spectacle of himself. <laughs> uh, and that's not all. There's another perfect joke that we had to give you. Week, we will take out the patient's snoo. What? What snoo? Nothing. What snoo with you? Ah! <laughs> Ew. That's an old joke. Yeah, well, it's snoo to me. Ah. <laughs> Janice's ew, I think, is the biggest laugh of the entire episode for me. <laughs> yeah. I just think this is, like, exactly what Veterinarian's Hospital is supposed to do done at the highest level. Yep. And I love that they did the snoo joke twice. Yeah. It's like being at Thanksgiving dinner filled with uncles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's that's what I want my life and my Muppet show to look like. <laughs> so Fozzie has a comedy bit this week. Two notable things about his act. According to the wiki, this is the only episode of the Muppet show where Fozzie says waka waka, having just said it in the Muppet movie. Uh, the other notable thing is Astoria is here heckling and she's stealing Fozzie's punchlines and she eventually just applauds and hurrays him so much that he has to leave the stage. Hey, waka, waka, waka. Ah. hey, did you hear the one about the lady who went to the psychiatrist and said, doctor, my husband thinks he's a refrigerator. And the doctor says, well, don't worry about it. And the woman said, I have to. He sleeps with his mouth open, and the little light keeps me awake. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm uh, moving right along. <laughs> yeah, and it goes on like that. And then he says, where did I go right? And walks off. I'm sorry to say that this is definitely the way that I watch TV. <laughs> like shouting out the punchline before it happens. It's also the way that I approach people on the street who want me to sign petitions or want me to, like, adopt a polar bear or whatever. <laughs> Some of them use jokes to try to, to, I don't know, engage you or get you to come over. So, yeah. Some, you just shout the punchline and keep going? I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> somebody asked me, what do, you, what do you call a cow with no... Or they asked somebody else. I wasn't even involved. What do you call a cow with no legs? And I just yelled, ground beef. Anyway, we have this jazz runner thing, uh, which the wiki calls a Muppet jazz riff. Uh, it's, a, it's a groovy little series that pop up over the course of the episode. Floyd and Zoot are just sitting on a bench on a city street, and they're jamming, and something funny happens, curtains close. So in the first one, they are approached by Slim Wilson of the Jug Huggers. Do you know how to get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, man. Practice. <laughs> the old ones are the best ones. Careful with that joke. It's an antique. Uh, the next one, Floyd is asleep on the bench. He gets jolted awake by sirens. Hey, man, what was that? B flat. Did anybody check if that's actually a B-flat? Nope, but I can. Um, yeah. yeah. Hey! <laughs> I mean, B-flat. What's weird is that it's not actually the same note that the siren was making. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he was referring to the sound of the siren or the sound of the crash. And if it's, if it's the crash, it's not the sound. It's that the crash happened, and then that's the, that's the joke. It is funny to say B-flat. <laughs> I, I wondered if it's the funniest note. Is it the only one that's a sentence? Oh, no, B sharp and B natural are also sentences. It's one of three that's a sentence. Yeah. B flat is funny. Somebody didn't get the PBS Signals catalog in the 90s because that was a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next in our little jazz series, Animal is sitting in and he's drumming on some trash cans very enthusiastically. Hey! Hey, you! Down there! No, there's a little old lady sleeping up here. No, but hum a few bars and we'll fake it. <laughs> there's a little lady sleeping up here. <laughs> I lied. That's 
my biggest laugh of the episode. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. I just kept rewinding. I just wanted to see those few seconds over and over again. Uh, uh, and one more, Floyd and Zoot are approached by another stranger. Excuse me. Uh, Crosstown buses run all night. Duda, duda. <laughs> yep. Good job, everybody. And these these really gave this episode laugh in energy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated that. I, I just wish they spent like five dollars more on the set. Like the the building is so looks like a high school flat painted drama club set. It is very two dimensional. The bench and the garbage cans look fine. Like I I wasn't. It, it's the worst the, the one with the little lady when she opens the window, and mm-hmm. it's just like a flat painted piece of cardboard with like flat painted curtains on it, and then she opens the window, and the back side of the window is painted exactly the same <laughs> way. Yeah. I legitimately wondered if they were on the in the Sesame Street studio for this, knowing oh, that it maybe. was, or not knowing, but assuming that it was filmed like during a hiatus and they were all back in New York because it had that that look to it to me. But wouldn't they have had like a better brownstone to sit in front of if it was on Sesame Street? True, but if they didn't want it to look like they were on Sesame Street, mm. also like the lighting, the quality of the lighting was like brighter. There's just something about yeah. it; it all felt a little bit yeah. like a rushed reshoot. Maybe they wanted it to have the laugh-in vibes. Like, maybe she opened a flat panel because that was what they were going for. Yeah, maybe. I will say also, again, on costumes, I mean, I don't think any of this is new, but um, and trigger warning, I guess, from Muppet Feet, uh, if that's the thing that bothers you. But they're, um, Zoot and uh, and Floyd are on a bench, and, and so you see them full body. And Zoot is wearing flip-flops or sandals of some sort and has toes, which I didn't love. Uh, but Floyd is wearing cowboy boots, uh, which are amazing, and which I think are in the Museum of the Moving Image. There's definitely a, a some Floyd costume parts there. I'll have to look next time I go. I love them, but I yeah, they just boots. look they just look great. Like the puppets all look great on this, even if the set looks like garbage. Although I, I noticed that Zoo was wearing, I think, seersucker pants, uh, which on that kind of broadcast camera lines like that close together cause video distortion. So. Uh, I thought that was like a weird rookie mistake for season four. Although again, if this was, if this was like a, a rushed reshoot, maybe that right. explains some of that. Did they do that at the time or is that an HD thing? No, no, no. That's definitely like an old school broadcast okay. thing. Cause like sometimes stuff like that happens and I, I feel like it's, it's new. <laughs> it's a new problem. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's not possible that this, this pants were not what I think they were and something in the like conversion made it look fuzzier than it actually is. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, I love these little jazz moments. They're what I want. Thank you, Kermit. I don't want you to know how much I admire you frogs. You you admire us frogs? Why yeah, is yeah. that? Because y'all can do this. <laughs> I can't do that. That's a myth. That's a myth. What? Myth, myth. Yeah. Hmm. Boo! <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for our highly anticipated discussion of the Liza Minnelli episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo is created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Kermit's little tada thing is so cute, but I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I don't either. Because he does it twice in the episode. He's done it before. He's, it's, a, it's a bit of a running gag now, too, where he, yeah, he sort of like, sings along ta-da. with the fanfare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's not worth trying to explain. Yeah. We can just leave this in. <laughs>